All right, in this topic, we're talking about the hard truths about um, marriage, specifically around uh, what it means to be a wife. So many topics, especially about the biblical concept of a respectful, submitting uh, wife, are extremely volatile for men and for women. Uh, and it's understandably more so for women. So before we actually get into this, and we're not going to cover it entirely, but we will touch upon it, to fruitfully tread upon this topic area, we need to agree on the importance of seeking the truth. So we're not even going to get into that. I think a lot of issues we have to start with accepting the truth based on scripture is hard because God's truth often doesn't support our personal rights and doesn't reinforce our belief in ourselves being right. So any discussion of hard truths ultimately forces a confrontation between our desire, our need, our preference to be right. And we can always ultimately justify being right and being in the truth. And so from my perspective, you and anybody is free to do whatever they want. I have personally no horse in the race on whether somebody chooses to be right and not in the truth or to be in the truth and to lay down a right. I think the ideal case, which I do encourage, is to work within the same scriptural content and the framework and to claim that you are both right and in the truth, where your, your thinking and what you want to be right is also the truth. And that's fair. However, um, while this isn't always the case with every single concept, the ones that touches the deepest will certainly be the case where you have a need to be right and the truth, and they compete with each other. So however you land, whether it's on this topic or another topic, it's better to just be honest with yourself and with others if you prefer being right over being in the truth. Like I said, I don't have a horse in the race. My intent isn't to argue that you are wrong while you are right. My goal is to just try to examine what is the truth and make that case. So it may appear when we talk about the topic of women that men get off the hook and are treated preferentially. And I wanna emphasize that this is not the intent nor the case. They are treated differently. Um, but I, I will say that even if um, men passively agree with this sort of initial uh, framing of the topic, and again, it's, it's one that's super rich and we will need to go in more depth, men bear the burden of being able to teach this to other women, including their own wives. And teaching doesn't mean just being autocratic or doing so without a depth of reasoning. Like we wouldn't accept someone who was teaching us science or history if they just didn't seem to understand it and couldn't go back to source material and just sort of like spewed it. And so that same burden lands for men. And I think it's actually a test of the church's ability to teach sound doctrine. Are there people, are there men, are there elders who are able to talk on this topic? as well as for within the family context of the man and the husband to lead spiritually for this very reason. It is an ultimate test because it's against the prevailing culture. And, and, and I'll try to touch upon this, but I think it's probably worth an entirely separate topic on 
how um, significant the prevailing culture is on this. So let's let's pull back and get back to the core concept of the essentialness of trying to pursue hard truths. And so 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take thought every thought captive to obey Christ. That is a call upon Christians. And we know that there are going to be arguments that are counter what is the truth, which is this knowledge of God. And obviously it's in the context of Christ and the gospel. So hard truths, sort of by their definition, are, are very hard to accept and to follow. Like there are many things that ultimately, if we study scripture, we realize this is something that's true, but it's really hard to want to follow or accept. Easy truths, on the other hand, are very easy to accept. And they're like bromides, they're like the fortune cookie, and they just fall as common sense. And unfortunately, I will make the case that many, many Christians live in that easy truth that's easy to accept. God loves you. Oh, well, that, that's sort of easy to accept. Like, why, why wouldn't you accept that? Like, it doesn't make sense. Even Christ died for your sin. Well, it's sort of easy to accept at that layer. Oh, somebody died. They were sacrificial for me. Oh, great. I need to believe that that's true. Oh, sure. That's an easy truth. And I am amazed. There are just some, that is the extent of their doctrinal knowledge. Elders. God loves you, and God died for your sin. That is the extent of their understanding of the truth of the gospel. These are easy truths. Easy lies, on the other hand, are just as easy to accept. And I, I think that's perhaps therein where the danger lies, because they're so easy to accept, and they can disguise themselves as an easy truth. And so when one lives in the world of just easy truths, you, you could just very well be living in a world of easy lies. And then hard lies are the things that most people are able to avoid because um, it's a hard thing they don't want to accept and it's a lie. So people are probably just going to you know avoid those in the same way they avoid hard truths. So now let's click down a little bit and we're talking about what scripture talks about being a wife. And I think a fair question is, well, what does a man know about being a wife? Like, I think that this is an important question to ask would be, why listen to me or any other person, a male pastor or a male elder? And let's take a look at Titus 2, 3 to 5. Likewise, he's addressing the definition of elders. Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they, the older women, can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. So let's, let's parse through that and sort of say, well, what, what, what do men know about being a wife? And I will agree, men don't know anything. They don't have any direct experience, like on their own. Um, but that's not the expectation. The expectation is to be able to teach through a knowledge of Scripture. That is fair. And I believe that that foundation of spiritual leadership and eldership is you parse Scripture, but you also not only exegete what the written word is, but you gain cred credibility by exegeting, interpreting, 
your own lived life and the world around through that lens. That is how you generate wisdom. And they, 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 the, those three interact together to become a coherent system. If you can't do that, then you, you're not able to teach and you certainly can't and should not be an elder. And I, I would argue that um, that capability for an elder to this do this very thing is for every elder is a good litmus test of the strength of the gospel and doctrine within a church. Because if they give the elder a pass, which I think many do, they've already laid a foundation that's broken and fragile. However, I would actually argue that ultimately every man as a Christian should be on a path as they mature to eldership. So it is fair that it should be extended to every man. And we know that uh, elders are married men. And so th that expectation of a man being able to teach the older women the way so that they can, those women can in turn teach younger women is, is something that is a sort of minimum expectation. Uh, so the rest of this teaching is going to be mostly uh, addressed towards uh, women in the sense that uh, trying to work through the opposition. I'm taking the perspective that there's going to be presumed opposition because that's been my experience, um, just hearing the discussion and reading it out in the culture. Uh, but, but this means men need to listen because they need to, A, construct their own conviction. Like if they don't believe what this is said, then th then th there's a problem. There, there's not going to be a reinforcement and there's not going to be a teaching. And as I mentioned, there is going to be a far greater burden on the men to understand this because they're going to need to be able to teach this. And they're going to need to factor in how are they going to teach this in a way that's credible and wise and truthful. So uh, let's click down further into Again, before I actually get to the teacher, I, I know this seems like a super long runway, but I think it's absolutely important that we couch whatever we're talking about in this context. So a hard truth, which we talked about, is, is difficult, and it ends up becoming a contest between uh, God's word. There's a lot of arguments against that, which we saw, and the patterns of the world. So let's take a look at Romans 12 too. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so we see that we are at odds. The ability to see and accept what is true is dependent and in opposition to the degree of conforming to the world. He, he, Paul is really setting these up as you are going to be in opposition with much of the world. And I think when it comes to women's place, women's role, their definition, we really, really need to pay attention to what is the world saying and how much are we capitulating to the world versus what is said in scripture. So this nonconformity is not from human will. It is from scripture. And this renewing means a changed mind, which is not of your own will. It is a part of the regeneration. And what is it able to do? It is able to, uh, you know, I looked up the, the, the Greek for what was used in this context of transformed, and it translates to determine the authenticity of God's will. And, and his desire for us. And that seems right. I think in the end, 
that's a very different lens than what is right. What do I want? It is, I want to determine the authenticity of God's true desire for me. So that sounds great. That sounds like people will initially always buy into. So what is the problem? I would say the problem is that the way the mind works is this chain reaction. So there's something that we see content that can be observation in the world. It can be something that we've read. Then comes the thought, which is why there's a renewing of the mind. Then we react to it. I don't like it. I dislike it. I agree with it. It makes me uncomfortable in emotion. And then a decision. It's not true. I'm not going to follow it. I'm going to argue against it. So let's take a look at John 21.4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. And this seems like something you can just gloss over, but here he's describing truth can be right in front of your eyes and you don't see it. You don't recognize it. Spiritual blindness is not like just a physical blindness. Like it's, it's blindness in your thought. And it's the thought that simply can't see what is in front. And so if you can't see something and accept it as truth, then you react with a different emotion. Somebody's telling you, if you're hearing me as I'm saying something, and rather than saying, okay, well, geez, let me evaluate that that seems to be in scripture and you've looked at it in other contexts and in different lights, it's like, gosh, that seems like it's the truth. You're going to act with the re- emotion and often it's attacking the messenger. And then that results in your decision to choose or to accept. So, so that's what's happening. So what happens when women hear from Ephesians? Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I've sort of bookended Ephesians 5, 22 and 33. And so you see that these are bookends, submission and respect. They do go hand in hand. And that's why it's important. It's, it's very hard to get one without the other. And I will make the case that there is often great correlation, the unwillingness to submit, this resistance to it, leads to either conscious or unconscious respect of the husband. And you can try to parse it in your head, well, I won't submit, but I'll still respect, or I'll submit, I can't submit, but if he does X, Y, and Z, meaning he submits to me, then I will respect it. So, so you can already start to see there is a traumatic response to this. And I would then turn it back and say, well, what are your common thoughts on the word submit? Right? There's content, which is just there. It's, just, it's the word of God. And then we fill it with our own thoughts on submit. And there might be, as I talked about in another uh, uh, talk message here, that there might be, you might fill that word with meaning that you're bringing in. And they might be images from the media or from personal experience. Um, there might be internally a desire to parse it in a, in a different way, but we have to keep going and see that this, this is about social pair. So the rest of Ephesians uh, talks about it. So, so some people will say, well, it says submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to Lord. Oh, wait, but they really mean wives submit to husbands and husbands submit to wives. In this context, I don't think that makes the, the case. Uh, 
But notice how that's often the interpretation. It says, well, submit to one another. That is really what we're saying, even though it later just says, wives, submit to your own husbands. But there isn't an explicit statement, husbands, submit to your wife. Yet, do, do you see how often interpretation would just say, yeah, but it says submit to one another. Think about it this way. Think about it as Paul does it, as he breaks them out paragraph by paragraph, submitting to one another in the fear of God, colon, Example one, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Example two, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Example three, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Now, you tell me what seems to make sense. This one another is then followed by these very explicit societal pairings of submission. So if we take the argument, oh, well, no, it's just saying, even though it says wives submit to your own husbands, it's really saying at the same time, husbands submit to your wives because that first phrase says submit to one another. So it must be equal and reversible. Then by that argument, we would say the same for children and bond servants. So parents also submit to your children and masters also submit to your bond servants. So it, this doesn't seem to work. So either we're trying to say, well, we're going to undo the entire order or within this set of parallels, wives and husbands, children and parents and bond servants and masters, wives and husbands, it's going to be complete, treated completely separately, even though there's no indicator of that. And so within this context, what do I see? I'm not seeing that they're trying to say one is less than the other. I mean, in both of those cases, with children and parents, the parents have an admonition to not like frustrate their children. And masters have a um, sort of a, a guidance on how to treat their bond servants. So, so there is something on both sides as with husbands. Implicit in there is there is an order. And notice how it's not children obey your parents if they do X, Y, and Z. Bond servants obey your masters, but only if they do these three things. Yet how often within the Christian dialect, I mean, I was just on a forum the other day. It's like, yeah, well, wives, they will only submit if they feel they feel the following is being done. There is not that conditionalness. So there's something we need to accept that this is a hard truth and why, how you're listening to it, what is your distaste if you'd have a distaste for it? And, and to share that with someone, like why? why? What is the rejection of it if it's just a need to be right? Now, if you're taking issue with scripture, then I encourage how would you handle that within these uh, selections of scripture? But I would say a lot of the times in discussion, it's often the need to be right at the expense of experiencing the truth. And, and I will say that there, there's, a, there's some differences between this. One is an argumentative. And, and I would say, actually, we can go into that. have another talk on quarrelsomeness of, of wives have to do with this. And one seeks the truth. And I would say there's a reasoning that is seeking the truth, which is good. 
but there's an argumentativeness and a quarrelsomeness which is more about discrediting the person reasserting someone else's wrongness finding ways to just dismiss the message without the recourse of reasoning so let's take a look in isaiah 118 come now and let us reason together says the lord Though your sins be as scarlet, they be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And this is a fascinating um, passage to read in terms of the nature of him applying reasoning. And then Acts seventeen eleven. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day. To see if what Paul said was true. See, I am fine with a, 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 a counter-reasoning. I think that there is something healthy about that. But notice how he's examining the scriptures every day to seek the truth. And they are receiving the message itself with eagerness. I, I don't find this to be the case when talking about this topic. I, I don't find that there's an eagerness to receive and say, okay, I, I hear it. right? And now I'm going to look through for it and and understand it and so i think if you're listening to and you've had challenges with this you know how are you approaching it with reason are you approaching it with reason and engaging it or if somebody else is discussing it are you trying to discredit the person or heighten your own belief of why that person is wrong so let me give some examples some common tactics i've seen and experienced where it's an argument so you pick a phrase or an example and say the entire case is just wrong. So it could be picking an example where someone's sort of trying to illustrate what that submission looks like. And, and, and there are examples and illustrations and, and, and that one is picked apart and says the entire case is wrong. And, and, and I think that's um, sort of like almost bordering on an ad hominem attack where you kind of, and I talk about that shortly is resorting to extra arguments. So meaning it's outside of the realm of what you're, you're, you're discussing and you just sort of add a requirement and say it's not fair. And fairness, you can determine what's not fair. And then in that case, you prove that it's not true. But at no point did it try to justify that it was being being fair. And, and I'll talk a little bit about that towards the end. Um, Similarly, it's just the language or the practice is misused and abused. So someone using an example from, I don't know, hundreds of years ago where people might have used it to uh, you know, deny women the right to vote, for example, um, or to work a job. And so uh, those aren't good either. I would agree those aren't necessarily good. But that tries to invalidate the argument because someone misused the scripture. Another one is a, what I call the flexible God argument. And it's like, well, God can be anything and everything, and he's huge, and, and, and he wouldn't do that sort of thing because he is so X, Y, Z. And I think those arguments can have potentially a place as long as they're rooted in Scripture and put within this context. Um, and then the direct ad hominem attack, which is, well, but you haven't done this if you're speaking to someone, or you aren't this way. And then it becomes an ad hominem attack to take down the, the truth. What, what's interesting is that many of these approaches, the ad hominem attack, the extraneous uh, theory attack, the flexible God attack, 
All those have a foundation in the legalist legal system. They are taught as part of instruction in modern legal teaching. And they're so pervasive. They're reaching even down into modern universities. And a lot of those have to do with sort of the rights-based approach. That's not the same as truth-based. And so I would say if you're struggling with this or wanting to know how to live it out, the first one is how much seeking and examination of the scriptures are you doing on your own? Like there's me, I'm just an intermediary. I'm trying to, you know, frame a discussion and putting forward the scriptures, but you're welcome to A, go to those same scriptures and find others too. And then are you receiving them eagerly as words of the Lord? Like that is an important part of it. You know, are you receiving those? Because I would say most people, they don't think of it as the context of, oh, this is coming from God. It's like, oh, this is some annoying thing from this Bible, this historical, cultural thing. If you're already in that space, then, then no amount of, like, I, like, like we don't need to have an engagement on this. Like, there's no, there's no point in me trying to refer to scripture if the reaction is not receiving them eagerly. Because if you have a secret um, sort of, you know, resistance that you're harboring or resentment to God's word, and I'm not saying that you hate God or you're not a, you know, uh, you, you don't believe in him or anything like that, but specifically, many people have a resistance and resentment to God's word. And I mean, if you don't want to search it, if you don't think, oh, there's a truth here. If you're not, when you're stuck on something, you go and read it and you try to say, well, how do I understand this? If you're not treating it that way, there's resistance and resistance is not that much far, further than resentment. Ugh, I got to do this. Ugh, what a what a burden. Th then, you know, th that I believe is more of the focus than, than the content, right? It's, it's very hard to be wanting to examine something to seek the truth if already the very basis of that relationship with the word is sort of negative and constrained in this in this way. And so when we get back to this, I feel like a lot of times we need to pull back out of the definition of submission, which I haven't gotten to. I think it's still important. But, but within the context of Ephesians, what is the intent of this passage and the intent of the institution of marriage? So he talks about all this in Ephesians. And then Paul, Paul says, or he writes in Ephesians 5.32, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church, which is, a, I think, a very strange verse because this, the antecedent, what he's referencing is grammatically about husbands and wives. And he seems to you know, indicate that in this following commentary, in the following sentence. But, but he says, but I actually am speaking about Christ and the church. And so we have to think about what is the goal of why is he talking about? And this is a relationship between Christ and church. And so what is the gospel? We, this gets us back to what is the nature of the gospel. Most of us go straight to, yes, Christ died on the cross for us. So therefore, husbands have to die on the cross for us. And I'm like, yeah, th there is some element of truth in that, but that's too pointed. It's too constrained. You see, the question is, was Christ head of the church and was respected only because of his sacrifice? Which is how a lot of interpretations often are. 
right? Someone will say, yeah, but I don't really need to respect my husband until he shows me he's Christ-like and a sacrifice for me. That, that is a very, very, very common. But think carefully. Think carefully about what actually was a story throughout the book of the Gospels all the way before Christ was sacrificed at the cross. How, how, how was the church? You could say, oh, but the church wasn't founded until after he was done. And I could say, yeah, yeah, you know, okay, technically that's, technically that's true. Technically, there was no real church until after he 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 died. I suppose. Um, I, I I'm not sure. So someone can, is free to argue with that. I'm not sure that that's the right way I would read it. I think there are many people that chose to follow Christ because they realized who he was and what he was bringing forward. And, and they were laying down their lives and choosing to follow him. Um, they were confronting their own sins. There, there's a lot of things that are happening far before his sacrifice. Um, and so I, I would take that into consideration. Is it really, do we really want to have that tight of a definition? Because we want to portray the gospel. And I, I think it's not about he sacrificed is the end thing, right? I mean, that was an important part of it. It was a necessity because of man's sinfulness and God's justice. So it was certainly part of it, but the, the gospel is about uh, we, we are s- sinful and there needed to be a Jesus who is at the head, who is part of the church, who is perfect. And so there are a lot of things that we cannot possibly draw a direct correlation, especially if we want to have man sort of represent Jesus, right? So I think we can at least focus on that, that to expect someone to be at the level of Jesus in this model uh, for humans is totally unrealistic. But someone could say, yeah, but it's then unrealistic for the women to do that. And I'm like, I'm not sure if that part is actually true. Because what is the church expected to do here? Is it's a dependency upon Christ. That's the part that us humans should follow. Like no human can be Christ. So we're not trying to model Christ. The wise are modeling what all of us should do, men and women, towards Christ. I I think that is a far more fruitful takeaway. If we try to make it paired off, well, husbands have to set as their standard to be like Christ and women are then like the church, that's just going to to fail on so many ways. There are some legitimate things to take, but men and women, husbands and wives are part of the church. And so by that argument, they will look upon what is a marriage to use that to reflect how they are to relate with Christ. So men and women Man, I wonder if I could just tighten this argument in the future. But it, men and women are supposed to show a dependency upon, you know, upon Christ, and so therefore women should be doing this as 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 well as wives, because that's just what they want to communicate. That is the the gospel. As imperfect as the husband will be, in the end, the goal of this pairing of uh, husbands and wives is more to illustrate for women, for the um, church, how to behave towards Christ. It is not really to say, well, this is how husbands should be and be exalted at this level of Christ, which is just utterly impossible.
And and so it, it may feel a bit, you know, unfair or biased or, you know, what have you to uh, be in that, in that way. And uh, that's not the intent. But I think we have to look at it and see what is the result that we want to, to, to try to do best. And I think within a marriage, it's going to be tough for people to see the way to, to, to Christ in many ways. Um, there are some that we can that can be modeled, but how do we want the secular world to see how the church behaves towards Christ? Let's frame it that way. Like, like I don't think the our our job uh, is going to be effective to explain um, who Christ Christ is. That's sort of a, a tough tough thing to to do with humans. It's possible, and I think we can talk about some of those ways. But the challenge always is there's plenty of communication about who Christ is. Like you almost don't need to really do There's plenty there. That's typically not where the hard part is. There's plenty of stuff, even in the secular world, that's describing very clearly who Christ was and what he stood for. The challenge has been how the church, man and women, respond to Christ. And the question is, is the wife behaving in the way that the secular world, world does to Christ? Dismissive disrespectful and mocking. Like I would say that the secular world behaves that way. And in and, and, and however what happened, and, and I'll talk about this, hey, this feels like it's sort of an imbalance, but I, I'm gonna talk about, try to talk about that, but if the wife is behaving as a secular world does, dismissive and disrespectful and mocking, they're really, and marriage is that institution to point people to how the church behaves towards Christ. Think we're sort of behind the eight ball at that point. Like that—that that is certainly not what we would want to see. Um, and so, if we're going to the the last part, which is sort of uh, what is the fairness of this? Uh, I, I I I would go to this uh, part from from John. And um, it's the book of John 21. And Peter is looking at one of the other disciples whom John loves. And he says, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if you want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. And and, and what he's, what's happening in this, in this phrase is, um, Peter is looking at somebody else and saying, "Hey, what, what, what is this fair? Uh, like, like, what, like, like, what, what's going to happen with 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 this with this guy? And then what's going to happen to me? Like, are you putting something unduly fair upon me than upon other people?" And, and that's kind of how um, Peter was was reacting. Then he's like, "Hey, what about that guy?" And Jesus is saying, "Well, you know, what what is that to you?" You're following me, and, and and that's perhaps not a satisfying response. I'm sure it wasn't satisfying for Peter, but but I think that when you're dealing with something so big, um, and and a degree to which we may not be able to fully understand, as Jesus and life and death and our eternal uh, and sin and God, it to expect it to follow sort of our rules of expected 
exactitude and equivalence might be too much. And I think we'll drill into that further. I don't want that to be sort of the end-all emphatic argument of all. But I think it is actually worth considering is Jesus' own words, is what is that to you? You follow me. So um, we're going to continue further about um, how this has been set up, what it means to actually implement. I think this is a really um, sort of foundational approach to looking at the hard truths about being a wife um, according to um, God's word.